Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Now it looks like we're live. So apologies to anyone that was watching live. <laughs> I thought I'd click the live button, but I hadn't. <laughs> so we started chatting. Uh, mate, how are you going? I'm good. You know, I had uh, breakfast with my wife today because my wife uh, is has a day off. Actually, she had a booster shot. Oh. Um, on on Thursday, and she's been pretty sick actually. Post the booster shot, she didn't have any kind of reaction really. The big one with the with the first two, with with the you know, um, with the booster one, and she she and she was vaccinated much earlier than most of us with me as a healthcare worker. But um, you know, she's well past her six months. She got a booster shot, so yeah. Is that <laughs> a, is that a good sign? Heart. Is that a good sign that she reacts to it? Or I guess so. I mean, it means that, you know, I guess the vaccine is doing its thing. Mm. Uh, but man, I mean, you know, it like, yeah, it looks like something. <laughs> yeah, <up>. right. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so. I, I didn't, I didn't react so much to the first one, Pfizer, but the second one, um, that got me, that got me really good. So if the third one builds on that, if this is maybe even linear, <laughs> it doesn't even have to be exponential. It could just be linear. And I would probably be up the creek without a paddle, so to speak. So so your week's been good, mate. What have you been up to? Oh, nothing much. I mean, you know, when I say nothing much, I mean, I had a good week. I think, you know, I, I did a bunch of reading around stuff, some some of the things we're going to talk about. So I've been reading a lot about uh, what's going on in the in the cloud world. And uh, yeah, I've been working on my recommendations. So, you know, I've got my recommendation locked in um, for the 1st of December. We only a few more days to go. Um, yeah, but. I mean, you know, and we've had a bit of a sell-off as well, which, you know, which contrary to what people were thinking, you know, it's making me smile, which means, you know, the, the next recommendation that goes out, you know, gets a good price yeah, <laughs> because yeah. there has been a sell-off, right? It is very weird that, you know, as, as, as people like us, right, who are still, you know, buying stocks and building a portfolio, I love when there are sell-offs. It means, you know, I can dollar cost average into stuff that I want to add more to at a better price or start a position in something that I haven't started yet because I thought the price was too too high. So, That's it. Yeah. yeah, I put out a tweet yesterday about EML, which is another thing that we'll talk about. So we're going to talk about cloud computing, AWS and Cloudflare. We're going to talk about a few companies in the ASX like, um, like EML. And um, I put out a tweet saying it's been a fun year for EML shareholders. And it's tongue in cheek, right? Like it's, you say that tongue in cheek, but a lot of the people that own EML quickly piped up and said, it hasn't been fun. It's been pretty scary. <laughs> and I think, I think the difference is once you've done it for long enough, you, you come to know that that's okay, that the volatility is just part and parcel of investing. And that's what I love about it. I love it when people disagree with you because, well, I love it when you're correct. It's not so much, it's not so much fun when they are all correct and, and you thought you had this variant perception that turns out not to be so. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I kind of love those days. And so when you're an advisor or an analyst and you're looking for companies, it actually makes a lot of sense to go where the action is to see where the, the, the opinions are really polarizing because I feel like that's where the opportunity is. 100% agree. I, I, you know, I totally agree with that. You know, the, that's where the opportunity is, right? I mean, some of them you're going to be wrong, which is completely fine. But the ones you're going to be right, you're, you're going to make a squillion there. And that's going to make up, you know, I love to say, that, you know, maximum downside is 100%, right? And if you're betting on a good company, a maximum downside is probably 50%. 
in, in, in terms of capital loss, right? I mean, unless a company is going bankrupt, um, you're not probably going to lose certain percent of capital, but your upside in many ways is uncapped, right? You could go 5x, 10x, 50x, maybe 100x in some cases, right? Um, and, and those variant perceptions, those are, yeah. So I saw that I saw that chart and I said, you know, ah, you know, Owen is poking some fun at people, but, you know, uh, but, but, but it was it was. Let me put it this way: it was too uh, too good. <laughs> the tweet didn't say much, so you know, people were saying, ah, you know, it's not really clear what you were trying to say, right? <laughs> That's it. You always just leave a little bit open to the imagination with tweets, and then people, you never know which way people will go about it. Um, and maybe it's a bit of like goading them, getting them to come in and, and say something, but. It's always good when a company like EML jumps 30% on a single day and you've held it for so long and you've been underwater for a while. So, um, yeah, great stuff. But we'll get to that in a sec. Um, so so you've been working on like getting to the bottom of what's going on with Cloudflare versus AWS and the whole ecosystem there. You've got a recommendation coming out. Um, anything else on, on your radar? Well, those are the two sort of main, I mean, things. Uh, I mean, I think you know nothing else really has been on my radar. I mean, the volatility has been has been there. Uh, there's a new uh, Fed chair being picked, well, which is basically a continuation of uh, Jerome Powell. Um, and and there was some. I think. The, I mean, this, I'll make this quick. There was some. You know, the the other contender was supposedly dovish. Means you know was going to be. I guess even more loose <laughs> in terms of. Uh, I don't understand what more dovish means than cur- the current situation because <laughs> I really can't imagine how can you be more dovish than current situation. So uh, in the market, it seems like was a little unhappy with that. Um, for you know, basically, I think they read it as well. The rates, interest rates are going to go up. Um, yeah, and other than that, really, you know, um, I've been having, you know, I thought, yeah, it's good. There's a little bit of volatility, but nothing else really. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah, it's been a pretty, pretty busy kind of glide into Christmas for us here at Rask. Um, it's always that bit of planning, like people start planning earlier and earlier these days, it seems like what's going to happen in 2022. Um, but the last week we've seen some podcasts go live on this channel, the Australian Investors Podcast, we've had um, a podcast with a quantitative investor, which was really interesting for those investors who don't know what quantitative investing is, what factor investing is. It's actually fascinating because not just in the, the, the way that we know factor investing to be if this, then that, but more so around the future of portfolio building. So I'm not sure if you're really across this, mate, but in, more and more in the US, what we're seeing is uh, portfolios, custom portfolios built Basically, imagine an ETF, right? Where normally you go and you buy off-the-shelf ETF, and it might say the ASX 200, the S&P 500, the FTSE 100, whatever. But imagine if you could look through that portfolio and you could see, oh, the ESG rating for this is only a C plus when I want it to be a B plus, or the price to book is you know 4x and I want it to be 3x. Well, some of the new platforms, particularly in the US versus Australia, slightly different legal structure there, but what they're doing now is basically saying, what index do you want? What do you want your index to be? And we will collect that basket of stocks for you automatically. And that's a really interesting thing because effectively quantitative investors can get exposure to portfolios designed for them, like index funds, basically for them. Like, what do you want? You're, you can have that. And that's possible in the US. It's a bit easier in the US because of brokerage and because of all the different things that go on over there versus here, you typically have to be a high net worth to get that type of bespoke portfolio customization. So that was interesting. I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole in that one. 
Um, and we're doing this thing. I don't know if I've mentioned it to you, but we're doing this thing called the RAS Christmas Giving Appeal, which is where we've partnered with the, the Smith family and The Life You Can Save, which are two charities here in Australia and registered in parts over what, overseas. But basically what we've done is we thought, well, we get you know tens of thousands of people listening to our podcasts and most podcasts do a lot of advertising. We don't really do advertising. So why don't we just fill that with um, slots for, for charity for people to donate? So that's what we're doing between now and the end of Christmas, trying to raise awareness for what the Smith family are doing and what the Life You Can Save are doing. So if you're looking for a place to give this Christmas and you're listening to this, go right ahead. There's two charities right there. Tax deductible over two bucks too for Australians. So uh, great news. So, mate, we've got some we've got some stuff to talk about today. Um, we're doing it a little bit earlier this week because you're getting some landscaping done, which is pretty exciting. Um, the, maybe the first thing that we can just jump straight into is what is going on with Cloudflare and AWS. I started reading this this morning. I thought it was fascinating. I think some context actually matters here. Like, what what actually what's the background to this public cloud infrastructure? Yeah, so like, I mean, it's a cloud infrastructure at a very high level, right? Basically means that you can run, you can store data um, in the cloud. So you don't have to have your own infrastructure. You store it in Amazon's infrastructure and then you can access it, for example, from the cloud to do any operations on it, right? So uh, AWS has a product called S3, which is basically a storage product, but you can use it for, uh, you know, storing things. You can use it actually for web hosting as well. If you, if you combine that with Amazon's CloudFront, which is another service, which is basically a CDN service, which basically is a caching service. A CDN service basically means that if you're hosting um, a website, uh, so you have like, you know, rask.com.au and you have certain me- media files associated with it. You want those media files to be easily and quickly available to uh, people around the world. Then if that's the case, then you want something like, you know, a CDN and, and CloudFront could basically be caching those files closer to the users, depending upon how often those video files or audio files or image files are requested. But you could actually combine this with S3, which is basically just an archive of data. And then you can combine that with computing. And, and S3 has been a lead in this space. I mean, you can do this using GCP or Google Cloud Computing Platform. You can do this using Azure, but you know, Amazon sort of is a pioneer. Now, um, so that's just a background of sort of the idea, very high level idea. So it's, you know, compute and storage. This is a bit more about storage. Now, uh, Cloudflare is an interesting company. Cloudflare is, uh, Cloudflare started its journey in 2010 and it started as a CDN. So exactly what sort of Amazon CloudFront uh, is and it started as a CDN. But at that time, if you go back to, you know, uh, you know, 10, 11 years, then at that time, CDNs were mostly used by enterprises, large companies, like if you're a CNN or even like you know, a company like ABC, um, you know, you and you're doing iView, that's more recent, you want your content to be distributed by someone who can distribute at scale to large number of people, right? Uh, so uh, large companies, large media companies were using CDNs. And sort of Cloudflare changed the game and basically came and said, well, look, you know, we can also provide this for the same service for normal you know, websites or websites that are not, maybe not for profit or websites that are not just media companies, right? So basically SMBs and the likes. And and they built a CDN network uh, by basically taking this approach. And this approach has an advantage. The advantage was really that by by appealing to non-profits and other important websites, and they built a large base of customers, many of them on the free tier, but they also got people like Wikipedia, Right, and once you get people like Wikipedia 
on being served by you, you could actually go to telcos and other, uh, you know, networks, right? So the internet is basically a network of networks, right? You have, you know, Telstra needs to talk with Virgin, which needs to talk with Vodafone and things like that, right? They could then go to these telcos and, and basically say, look, you know, we host these major important, you know, major important websites are behind our, our service. And therefore we need to have a machine or several machines in your point of presence or data center or or we need to be co-located with you. Right. And, and that allowed them to build this network of call it proxies or machines that could store, distribute content for others. Right. So that's their story. But they did this very cleverly, right? So the, one of the advantages of doing uh, co-location with telcos is that you can reduce your bandwidth costs, right? Because you're peering with the telcos. So in, in a way, the telco is kind of taking off the cost or you're making a deal with the telco saying, well, you know, if I'm moving data back and forth, most likely I'm doing it for your users, right? Um, because, you know, if, if I've put a machine co-locate with the Telstra, for example, then likely I'm servicing Telstra people, <laughs> nobody else, right? So in a way, it, it makes sense for Telstra to do it. It's the same thing if, if you're Netflix and you want to put data into Telstra's network, it's good for, for Telstra as well, because the data is then just being served from within Telstra's network. It doesn't have to go upstream. And because whenever you go upstream, you actually end up paying for it because data has to come from somewhere. Right. So most of the time you pay for pushing data out. When you have to push data out, you actually have to land a pay. Right. That's known as egress fee, exit fee. Right. Um, so these guys basically with their clever arrangement, basically, you know, uh, came up with good deals for managing the egress and, you know, um, uh, egress fees. Then they built a platform on top of this, which allowed them to make their network very custom or allowing them the CDN to be very customizable. That then allowed them to sort of build other services on top of it. One of the things that they have been doing now is they've designed a platform called Workers, which is basically a cloud computing platform at the edge of the network. And why is it at the edge? Because each of their nodes runs very close to the end user. And why is that? That's because they're co-located mostly with telcos. Right. And telcos, by definition, are close to the end user. So they're, you know, at, at about 200 end locations and they could be, you know, within uh, tens of milliseconds from end users. About 95 percent of the world would be reachable by them. So they've got a highly distributed CDN network, which can then be used as an edge computing cloud computing. So you can do cloud computing stuff instead of doing it in large data centers. You could actually now do it at the edge of the network. Now, uh, what, what basically, so the gauntlet was most of the time, what happens is if you suppose store tens of terabytes of data with Amazon, it doesn't cost you anything to move the data around within Amazon. So you could use various Amazon services and move data from S3 to other services and it wouldn't cost you anything because the data stays within Amazon's network, right? Because they'll probably be all interconnected directly. Right? But if you want to move data out of Amazon, it costs you an arm and leg. <laughs> right? And uh, so the, there's an interesting blog out from Cloudflare, which basically says, look at the cost of this is the egress cost, you know, or, you know, there's the egregious egress cost is they make a ton of money for pull, putting data out. If you pull data out of Amazon to the internet, you pay. <laughs> so, and you pay through, you know, an arm and a leg. 
And those things, according to um, Cloudflare, and I would agree with them, would have huge margin. And the reason for that is very simple. If Cloudflare can have these great deals with telcos and with, because they're co-located, it's almost by definition that Amazon and other cloud players would also have those deals because they are also an important component of the internet, right? Stuff runs there. So almost everyone wants to have low latency, high-speed access to those things. And those those data centers, right? So they have those deals, but they just charge, right? Now you would ask, why is why could they charge? Well, it's because other people charge, <laughs> right? So it's like it's a little bit like you know, if Coles charges one dollar for the milk and Woolies charges one dollar for the milk, well, then there's the milk is always going to be at one dollar or two dollars or whatever. It's like almost like a uh, oligopoly, right? Uh, in that sense, uh, a duopoly or quadruopoly, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, so that's the status quo. So uh, these guys basically said, well, we want people to be doing things at the edge. There is a reason for doing things at the edge because it, it's good for things like IoT. It's good for latency sensitive applications. It's a newer platform. Um, so you could do both compute and storage at the edge. And they basically said that, well, we are going to waive egress fees for most of the cases. We're also not going to charge for compute. So, but compute by basically definition, if you have HTTP requests hitting your servers, then up to a certain level, we might not charge you anything, right? Amazon also does the same thing. So this is a direct attack in many ways on what AWS is charging. I would say that there's a fair bit of margin that's coming from that uh, for AWS when they're you know, charging you for basically bandwidth, right? Um, Something was that's very smart, and you know, it must have you know, thinking about the size of these things, right? AWS is much bigger, bigger. Like, you know, if you think about its run rate, that's 60 billion dollar run rate, or something like that, uh, at least if, if I remember 60 or 65 billion dollar annually, right? This company is less than a billion dollars total in, in terms of run rate. So, um, the fact that Amazon very quickly <laughs> responded by saying that okay, we are increasing our free tier. Uh, of data transfer allowance from both S3 and, and, um, and Amazon uh, CloudFront is interesting. It means that you know, they are uh, responding and they fact thought that they needed to respond, right? Now, one would think, why is this important? This is important for a couple of reasons. It's important because if you think about why there is an egress fee, well, they could, they're reducing the egress fee, right? but they're not completely eliminating it. it. It's not that they're going to lose margin more than it is about lock-in. So the whole idea is that if you have an egress fee, egress fee almost acts as a deterrent for people to take data out, which means that if you want to use other services, you want to use Amazon's over somebody else's. So it, it really deters from a true multi-cloud, right? If you want multi-cloud, you want to use the best of Amazon, the best of Google, the best of you know Microsoft, the best of you know, uh, CloudFront, uh, Cloudflare, best of Oracle, that is only possible if you can seamlessly exchange data between various points, right? But if it is going to be very costly to exchange, so it's almost like what they, what they dubbed the Hotel California experience. You can get in, but once you're in, you can't get out. <laughs> so um, so CloudFront has done a few very interesting things. It's, it's created this alliance called the Bandwidth Alliance, where a bunch of cloud players, including main cloud players in China, um, are going to exchange data for free with each other, um, which completely makes sense. Um, and the notable absentee is um, AWS from that list. Uh, Cloudflare has also got deals in place, but it's not free, but it's at a very like you know low negotiated cost with Azure and GCP. So all of these guys are working on uh, on 
I would say working towards multi-cloud because they all believe that multi-cloud is good for their business because they're much smaller relative to AWS, which is the Goliath uh, here, right? Uh, so I think it's all very interesting. And now what, what AWS has done is come back and responded saying, okay, we are also cutting. But if you read through it, there's a cap. They're basically, you know, the number looks like a huge deal, like in a terabyte in the case, terabyte per month, I think, um, and several gigabytes in the case for S3 and terabyte for, the, for in the case of CloudFront. What is it, I think, very interesting about that move is it is exactly geared towards those customers that I think CloudFront is trying to steal. So think about the new generation developer, the new generation startup, right? When you're a startup, you don't probably think, you're not probably thinking out five years down the road, how much data you're going to be generating and how many different types of applications you'll be using. Right now you would see, okay, it's free and it's okay for me to do it on AWS. Maybe I should do it on AWS. Everybody has been using, why should I use Cloudflare, <laughs> right? Uh, but then eventually, if you actually scale as a business, you probably, those free tiers are going to be not free very quickly. <laughs> You're going to exceed the threshold very quickly. So for any business at scale, you still land up paying, right? So it's still the carrot and the stick is at play there. So I thought that was a very interesting response from Amazon. It's very, you know, they're using a bit of behavioral, um, you know, finance, behavioral, you know, aspects to, to, to their pricing model to force developers to think, oh, it's okay, you know, it's free anyway. So it's all apples to apples comparison, but it's not really apples to apples comparison. So I think it's interesting and it, you know, it, it, so I'm waiting to see what the next move is going to be from CloudFrey. But, you know, it looks like there is probably a fourth player in the cloud infrastructure play in the making. It will be CloudFlare. And the other, I guess, takeaway is that this is really pushing towards a true multi-cloud environment. And true multi-cloud basically means more cloud uptake. So this could be win-win. This could be one of those things where, you know, the pie just becomes bigger for everyone to enjoy. And better applications for all of us as consumers and better things for all of us as, you know, and, you know, for enterprises to do. So, I mean, that, that was my critical. So I think it was all, I thought it's interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. So I've got so many questions out of this. So I hope we can keep talking about it is first of all, if, if you were building on the cloud today, is it possible that you would just build on Cloudflare because it is using edge computing and it's closer, you know, to use it's faster, it's more responsive. Like, is that, reasonable or would people still store a lot of their stuff in Azure or AWS? Um, I'm just thinking like if it's co-located, is there an extent to which it can be co-located? Like it's not a true data center, right? Like you can't store everything there. Is that right? Um, I think you could store everything. So I think, so I don't have a good answer for this. Um, my guess would be that you, you, they don't make everything possible would be my guess because it's a relatively new platform. So they might enable new things to happen. They might enable certain things to happen in a much better, much cleverer, much maybe cleaner interface, much easier to design. But I don't think they're positioning themselves as it as a data store, right? They're basically saying run compute and store some data at the edge. So there might be some applications which are, you know, which say that you want to store certain region located data only in certain regions, and you might want to, you know, store them for intermediate periods of time, and then maybe for, you know, backup data. So like, if you have a backup, backup application, I would still think that the backup application uses things like AWS, S3, 
like even uh, iCloud, for example, uses GCP and I think Amazon and everything, you know, it's iCloud storage. There are some servers that are from Apple that are doing it, but there's a bunch of external S3, Amazon S3 like services that's being used to store the data. So I, I don't think they're trying to replace everything. What they're saying is that for certain applications, you might find it easier to build it on Cloudflare. And for certain applications, you'd actually want to build it on AWS. And for certain things, you might want to use GCP. If, you know, um, Then of course, I, I think the eventual, I mean, I know what you're getting at. Eventually everybody wants to be all encompassing, right? So um, the whole point of you know having AI applications run and having a collaboration with NVIDIA and things like that is all about and running GPUs at these co-located data centers is all about, I think, doing a lot more locally, right? So at some point, you know, it becomes, tries to become all encompassing. Mm. And that's because traditionally with the CDN networks, they would be new sites and video, like you said, you would want that stuff. And Fastly comes into this because a lot of developers would choose Fastly for really, really rapid response times and changes to, you know, when we saw Fastly go down, we saw websites, I think it was like the Financial Times or New York Times or something um, was impacted by that. And so I feel like as we, demand faster speeds as we want to get closer to the computing source. I feel like that may be some sort of strategic edge for Cloudflare. Yeah. So I think, so the latency, I guess, is the main thing they're talking about here, right? Exactly. So if, you, if the data is stored far away, uh, you could do compute as quickly as you want, but you still have to move the, the, the answer back or the, whatever you have, you know, the post processing results back from wherever it is back to you. Now, the reality though is that these guys, both, you know, Azure and, you know, and uh, AWS, they may not have 200, uh, you know, um, pops, you know, they not, may not be presented to 200 points of presence and things like that, like uh, Cloudflare is, but they are presented in a lot of different places. So again, like if, if you're thinking about having something, you know, serving customers in Melbourne and Sydney, well, then, I mean, you know, you, you could get that easily done using um, AWS and, um, and Azure or GCP, right? Because they would they would have data centers in those locations, right? So, and those data centers then would be, you know, physically interconnected to the various telcos that exist in a given place, right? So I think, again, they have major footprint. These guys also have major footprint. It's just not as distributed um, as the Fastly's of the world or as, you know, um, the Cloudflare's of the world. So almost like I would say the, like the CDN is not really by definition programmable, right? So CDN is basically a caching network, right? And you can have different algorithms for purging things and moving things into different caches and you decide which one, you know, like a simple algorithm might be um, on the first request that doesn't is not served by the cache, move the things to the cache, right? And then keep it in the cache for a long period of time or keep it in the cache until the cache is full at which point you throw, throw the stuff that hasn't been accessed for the, uh, for the longest period of time, right? So you can have a frequency-based policy. You can have a recency-based policy. You could have, you know, some other aging-based policy, right? You could age things out after a period of time because you know the things like, you know, are not relevant, say, after 15 days, for example, right? Um, but that is very reactive, right? Whereas a programmable edge would mean that you can do a lot of computing there. So you, you not only have data 
for serving static video files or static images, right? You are actually actively doing compute on a data. That, uh, so th that's a, that promise has not realized for Fastly to a large extent. They've talked a lot about edge computing, but that hasn't really realized. Whereas um, sort of Cloudflare is realizing that by saying that, well, we have a, a proxy, proxy server around, um, around, around the globe. So it's a distributed proxy server and we could use the distributed pro proxy server because each server runs the same code or the same, I would say the same protocol stack or same stack. Uh, and therefore you could deploy code simultaneously across the entire network seamlessly, right? And, and that is a pretty powerful thing to have. So again, I think there's gonna be a lot more iterations happening over mm. time. Yeah, it's, and for those of you that don't really know where we just went in the conversation, basically what we're talking about is making the internet faster for users. And the, the way you can do that is you can cache things and you can store things closer to the user, whether that's in their browser or on a server that's closer with edge, edge computing. Uh, so it's, it's a fascinating thing because we all want the internet to get faster and move to the cloud is a massive shift. And it's a, like a tectonic shift in internet, in the internet and the way we know it. And it actually presents huge opportunities for investors, as we've seen over the past few years with AWS, Azure, even GCP. So if a fourth runner comes into this, a business that is already sticky enough, which is Cloudflare, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting company to follow, I think, uh, going for. We use Cloudflare, actually. Um, we use Cloudflare for, for serving content across the internet. And um, they always, they have this, so many tools now that even just with the basic package, that land and expand model is so clear to me that it works because... Of course, I'm going to pay for the basic CDN. Uh, and then I'm going to, I want that always online feature, which is a feature basically when your website goes down, anything that's stored at the edge can still be stored and people can still see your website. They can't interact too much. So they can't go into too much depth and compute too far, but they can still see something. So it always looks like you're active. And why wouldn't you have that as a contingency, even if it's only a couple of dollars a month, right? So really interesting. DDoS protection as well, right? You can DDoS protect yeah, your site. 100%. You have to. You have to. So You have to. <laughs> I remember in, uh, it's gone back a few years, but this is the, the classic founder story. The first time I went overseas in many years after starting the business, I was going to Vietnam. And the day that we were going to Vietnam, I got hacked. The website got hacked. And um, it was, well, it wasn't really hacking. It was DDoS. They were trying to just smash our website. It was coming out of, it looked like it was coming out of Hong Kong via China and then out of Iran or something. And basically the only way for us to prevent it was to go into Cloudflare and get them to just cut that basically they cut that connection continuously. And then you put in geo blockers and all this sort of stuff. But without that, we would have been very vulnerable and our website would have been smashed. It would have gone down for who knows how long. And so that's an example. It's like once I've used it, there's no way I'm giving it up. And I, I, th I think it's a really impressive business model. But I was, like I said to you in the last podcast or a few weeks ago, I was stuck on Fastly. I was still looking at Fastly thinking this is a great opportunity. This business looks like it's it's the leader it's the leader and what i should have been doing is thinking maybe not who is going to win trying to predict that so early maybe trying to think a basket approach might have been better with something like this and then consolidate. Can't hear you, so, oh you can't hear me yes i can hear you now <laughs> you can hear me now i don't know what happened we're back yes so thomas said he can hear me thanks thomas yeah um, it must be the cloudflare network <laughs> or, or it could be the Starlink network. Yes, that's probably the Starlink. <laughs> the Starlink decided to uh, selectively drop the audio packets. Actually, we can just blame Zoom, you know. Yeah, that's it. Zoom's probably, already Zoom's yeah. bombing out anyway. It's a, it was a COVID yeah, stock. It's it's yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Actually, that's an, that's an interesting thing. I wanted to talk to you about this is because I saw a massive list. I can't remember who posted it on Twitter the other day. There was a massive list of all these COVID stocks and Zoom was amongst them. And it was showing some uh, Pinterest as a company that I own. So full disclosure, I haven't avoided this. Um, many of these companies, these internet companies, have been absolutely smoked by yeah. the, this kind of reopening trade. Have you looked at any of them? Have you thought any of them are interesting? I have. I have a few. Like, <laughs> so I, this is pretty. So to my full defense, I owned the stock before COVID, um, and it's a, call, it's a stock called Teladoc, and I've actually oh, owned yeah, it yeah. for a few years. And I really believe in you know, I just believe in a secular tailwind. But that you know, company had a huge, huge run up because of COVID, right? And now it has been completely smashed. Like, you know, I'm basically saying, well, if it falls another 20%, I'm going to just, you know, maybe think of backing up the truck or something uh, on, on this one. But it's been, it, it's been hammered. Um, mm. You know, wow. and, and at one point, yeah, it's been completely hammered. So that's yeah. probably the one I can think of as a COVID show. I mean, the other one I've, I've looked at, you know, Zoom really, it's been like, it keeps delivering these huge free cash flow numbers in billions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and the stock just keeps going down. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, uh, I, but, you know, Zoom, Zoom reminds me a little bit of what, you know, your product can become somebody else's feature, which I guess you're going to talk a little bit about, so I'm not going to talk too much about it. Yeah. Well, Teladoc, I don't want me to rub the salt in the wounds, but I, I followed Teladoc from a distance because I think it's a fascinating business. Was at one point, it hit $300 a share. Now it's down to 106 So to give you an idea of how far this business has fallen, even Zoom itself over the last little while, you know, we all know Zoom synonymous with COVID, but also just you know, video conferencing in general. That was what, 550 bucks. Now it's 208 So this is, yeah. it, it's hard, but it's this is part of investing too, right? Like this is the psychology of the market because the fundamentally, Zoom hasn't changed that much. We're still using Zoom. The business is still growing. The business is still generating free cash flow. So fascinating stuff. Yeah, I saw that list. I think Peloton was another one which we spoke about with Claude, which, yeah, that's a different beast altogether. But yeah, you know, that's a different beast. Yeah, <laughs> Peloton. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, um, it's been a wild few weeks. And um, why don't we switch gears to one of the companies, which we we said we'd yes. talk about which is EML. So uh, maybe I can bring up the the update here. I'll just share my screen with you. So here we go. This comes to us via um, this comes to us via. I think I got it from ticker. So here CBI? we go. <laughs> yes, this is it. Comes to us via the CBI as well. So this is <laughs> this is the Central Bank of Ireland slash EMLs update. And for those of you who don't know, you can go back to a couple of episodes ago where we talked about. EML payments, but I'm, someone just someone said this is a bit of a stretch. I'm going to just run with it for now, uh, and then someone can correct me in the chat or on Twitter. But someone on my Twitter feed that said EML is the stripe of Australia, which I think is a bit of a stretch, but I I'll just take it for now because I own shares. Um, so EML payments obviously does um, it's basically a fintech enabler. That's how it's described. It helps other businesses take payments, send payments and just transact generally on the internet. And one of the things that they got caught up in is about 20% of their revenue or so was caught up in um, a, an acquisition that they made in England slash Ireland, which later got um, regulated. And the CBI is the, uh, the organization that did that. It was the Central Bank of Ireland. And they basically came out and said, we're going to do an audit of you. We're going to review your business. You can't accept any more clients until we've talked about this and gone through things. And the stock, which I think I've got here inside the ticket terminal, you can see what's happened over the last, say, three years. 
EML payments shot up, got, got crated, shot up again, crated. Um, this first one was basically the result of the company making acquisition heading right into uh, COVID. It was later proven that this acquisition was actually the one that has got it in trouble recently um, because of the, 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 it wasn't money laundering that wasn't mentioned, but that's basically the regulators, that's the concern in my opinion. Um, and so the business after we recommended it fell 40%, I think in a single day. So that was a bit of a shock to the system uh, and I'll bring it back up. And one of the things to note about EML is that the Central Bank of Ireland does proof the ASX updates before they go live. But there was some really promising news here. So here's the, I'm reading directly from the update. It says the CBI will permit um, PFS or prepaid card services of Ireland to sign new customers and launch new programs while staying within the material growth restrictions. Um, PCSIL is confident it can meet these obligations. The second one was they're going to, uh, there will be broad-based limit controls on programs will not be imposed as they previously thought. So everyone was fearful that EML's business more broadly would get hammered by this, but it, it seems that's not going to happen. And the final one was that um, the CBI intends a material growth limitation over PCSIL's total payment volumes will be imposed for 12 months or rescinded earlier following third-party verification. So basically what this means is, and I'll stop sharing now, is it can go back to doing what um, to doing what it's best at, which is helping other organizations take payments, send payments, do prepaid cards and those types of things. So an example of, a, of you know, incentives or um, something that EML might do is they might do you know, the Fujitsu air conditioner, you buy an air conditioner, you get some cash back on a card that you can spend somewhere, or they might do um, virtual account numbers if you work in, a, in an organization that offers things like, um, like salary sacrificing or some sort of incentive programs those types of things may come through an EML program. And anyway, the business is back to back in fashion all of a sudden. And I've got in the, the headline for this live and for the podcast that is EML cheap. And um, to be honest, in my opinion, we've talked about this on the show before, but in our base case scenario, we still think that EML is worth over $4 a share. And I know we don't, we don't like to be specific with valuations, you, you and me both, but just to give you a sense of where we thought the value was of this company as it went below $3. So um, we talked about at the top of the show, investors tend to, some investors tend to run away from this. I thought this was a great opportunity to actually collect shares in the business because now we're not out of the woods yet. So I've got to be clear, but we're not out of the woods yet with the CBI, but the amount of revenue and the, the, the segment that was affected by the CBI clamping down was a very small segment in the overall scheme of things. And EML was regulated totally separately in different geographies around the world, even in the UK or France. And so, to be honest, I think it was very overblown, the risk. Um, I think people tend to get spooked when a company's made a lot of acquisitions. And one of those acquisitions, like this one, all of a sudden has gray clouds overhead. Um, but for the most part, it seems like the business is going to emerge from this very, very strongly. And so, yeah. I'm happy to say that I think it's still quite cheap. I own shares. Um, I think it's one of Australia's businesses that is probably too complicated for most people to understand really well. And so that um, kind of weighs on investor sentiment when things go wrong. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the CBI announcement, but both, those were the three points in dot points. And provided we go well over the next few months, it looks like it's smooth sailing as Europe reopens. It'll be really interesting too. I hadn't, I hadn't looked, but I was just reading when, when you shared it. And that looks really, very promising, right? That's basically saying, like, look, we're going to 
like my takeaway is that you know we don't think there's a problem um and that the problem whatever the problem is is very manageable and therefore we're going to keep a you know an eye on things for a while and then we're going to you know um you know and and the company would be smart right i mean you know eml is going to be smart to navigate the waters carefully and has it so far it looks like they've worked really collaboratively with them so you know the other thing i was going to point out is like you know you you showed the three year chart it looked like a sawtooth <laughs> yeah. up and down but there's one thing i was noticing i was looking at the top of the chart and three year return was still 100% plus and the compound growth rate it was showing at the top of the ticker terminal uh, somewhere like 27.5 or 27.6 i didn't I didn't memorize Probably. the number so <laughs> whatever it is that is still a, a you know 27.5 mm. compound return right despite all all that has happened this stock has handily beaten the market right and uh, i think that's i think that's again a, a, a fascinating example of where you get great returns even in a stock that is highly volatile <laughs> so and and the volatility can actually work to your advantage if you know the company well again i, I think the other thing I'll, i'll echo is exactly what you talked about right if a stock is difficult to understand it's complicated and the there's a lot of ways in which people can get spooked well that can be an advantage mm. uh for the person who is willing to or the investor who is willing to actually think about it think deep and be patient mm. right look at this is the 10 year chart right yeah that's it 23.5 so the three so the three year has actually beaten the 10 year <laughs> that's even more fascinating to me than anything else right and those three years include a cbi investigation and and a covid so mm. yeah <laughs> take that for what you what you want <laughs> yeah and this is yeah and i think that's actually it actually is an interesting talking point in itself is basically some people want to stick within their circle of competence right and i get that and i understand that but you still have to work for it if you're an analyst you're an investor you still have to work for your for your edge if you want to understand a business you still have to do the work read the annual reports read the the weird thing that you think may not even have any relevance and probably doesn't um you still need to read that and understand it because a business like EML which has you know does it does payments in multiple jurisdictions got multiple segments um regulated in multiple different ways with hundreds of customers it's a it's a it's a base to try and wrap your head around but if you can if you're one of the few people that truly can understand the business when something does go wrong you have a much better chance of understanding than say if you own a supermarket like um Walmart or 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 Woolworths here in Australia you you and 50 other people uh at any one time is researching that company and understand it pretty well and so i think that's a really interesting one the other one that it's since got taken over was a company called GBST which is the first kind of this is going uh, going back a few years it got since got taken over but that did basically wealth management technology hmm. and and a lot of people struggled to get their head around it like what does this actually do a bit like bravura right exactly like yeah like bravura and um it 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 got snapped up and people who understood it made a lot of money from that and so i think if you can do that like cloudflare would be one we all kind of understand loosely that it's cybersecurity and you know internet thing um but what does it actually do if you know that and you know it well you can get a, a serious edge on the competition and a competition i mean other investors in the market so i don't know if i don't know if this is i well, i know it's a business that you follow well this next business but um it's a business that i know is on the tips of the tongues of most people that are interested in in dividends in uh retail in australia and that's a company called batcore 
Um, so Bapcor, this, this, the long-running CEO, Daryl Bottomy, has resigned. And um, this is interesting because I believe at the most recent AGM, he basically secured another few years and he's been with the company for so long. Um, so it's a really interesting time to step away. But I mean, the business itself, it owns Autobahn. It owns a bunch of other businesses like Burson's, if you're familiar with that from Auto Parts. And in Australia, it is the place to go for a mechanic. So they, speaking of co-location, they don't quite co-locate, but they get very close to those industrial areas around your home or around your work where there are mechanics um, actively servicing cars and they have these small kind of warehouses that service those on the daily. So a mechanic can, when you drop your car off at 7 a.m. in the morning, the mechanic can look at in the engine and say, okay, I need um, a gasket. I need a spark plug. Who's got that? Well, I'll call Burson and I'll have it here in the hour. And that is the competitive advantage, in my opinion, of a business like Burson, which is owned by Bapcor. And um, this CEO, Daryl Bottomy, has overseen the IPO, I believe, and has really steered it to success. I'll see if I can bring up um, some sort of chart here. But I don't know if you've had a chance to look at this matter if it's a company you follow closely nowadays, but for a long time there, it was a real market darling um, of a business. Yeah, no, I, I haven't, you know, um, followed it that closely. There was a point at which I did follow it uh, quite closely. Um, so my take has always been that, you know, like the Wayne Gretzky quote is you want to uh, skate to where the puck is going to be, mm-hmm. not where the puck has been. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Babcor is a business which is all about where the puck is currently. And in the puck is rapidly becoming smaller in size. <laughs> Um, now, I think there might be one advantage is, you know, Australia is not a very big place in terms of, you know, uptake of EVs and things like that. Uh, but a lot of these, a lot of the stuff that this company does becomes antiquated in an EV first world. Um, right. And there's some things, you know, because you don't need that kind of service. Can you explain that? Because I, I understand it, but uh, for a lot of our viewers and yeah. listeners that don't so, really understand so what you that just, means. You know, you, you exactly said that. Um, so, what does Babco uh, provides? It provides auto parts, gaskets, you know, uh, timing belts, uh, oil and filter change equipment, and you know, brake pads and things like all oh, sorts of screws, bolts, nuts, um, and it has got. Uh, you know, these warehouses that are co-located or very closely located, they're in industrial areas located close by. They have these trucks or the vans that roam around and serve, supply dealers and things like that, right? Uh, if the world is moving towards electric vehicles, electric vehicles have very few, uh, you know, parts that need that frequent servicing, right? They don't have a timing belt. They don't have oil and filter change requirements. They don't even need brake pad replacement because you don't use the brakes because of regenerated braking. Uh, I've had a Tesla Model 3 for now, um, you know, over two and a half, three years, maybe two and a half years. Um, and I've got 30,000K on my vehicle. The only servicing I've done is uh, two, ser- two items of service. And one was a tire rotation um, at the 10 or 15,000 kilometer mark, $52.80 done by Tesla at my garage. Um, I think they lost money on that. And, and then I've had to change tires because I really like to accelerate. Um, <laughs> So, so I've had to change tires, and that has put me back by that's uh, a fair amount because you need to put sports tires in this car. Uh, and this time, I actually put the cheaper sports tires. I'm being cheap. <laughs> uh, I didn't put the the tire that actually Tesla originally had. So, but other than that, I've not done anything to the vehicle, and the servicing schedule is on demand, right? 
that is the future. So there is a bit of a problem there, I think, in the business model as such. But maybe it's not a problem in the near term to the medium term because the pace of EV adoption in Australia is pretty slow, much slower than uh, the rest of the world, um, or, uh, rest of the developed world, much slower than in China. And, and then a lot of the other stuff is yet there's battery constraints. So maybe it's not a problem, but yeah. So when I say, you know, you want to skate to where the puck is going to be, the puck is the EV. And, uh, you know, this type of business model seems to be one that is going to be disrupted. The other business model that's likely to be disrupted is the dealer-based business model. Uh, Tesla is already disrupted by, by not having dealerships, right? Um, it's a company-owned stores and mobile fleet um, of uh, for service technicians, but it's all wholly owned, vertically integrated, right? So maybe we're going towards vertically integrated industry. Uh, I know that's not good news for some people who work in that industry, but, I mean, that seems to be the way the wind is blowing. So, um, yeah, but, but I, I think Daryl Abotomy has done a fantastic job as, as a CEO and person who took the company, I think, public in 2014. I think it went public in 2014. The returns have been good since then, may not have been great for the past few years. But, you know, if you add up the dividends and stuff, you get franking credits and things like that. It's probably a good run. Um, it's going to be a tough act to follow, I guess. And um, what I remember, that their big thing was they're going to move into Asia, Thailand, I think yeah. is one of the places. Those come with risks and rewards, right? I mean, it's it's a different dynamic, different market, right? Uh, if you know, if you said you want to in, enter the Indian market, I'd say yes, great, but a lot of challenges and a very different culture that you have to deal with, right? Um, so mm. that remains to be seen how that works out. Yeah, it's one of those industrial. Babco is one of those industrial businesses where people uh, think it's like a, a dividend plus growth company. Um, it's probably more along the dividend side of things these days. Whereas in the past, it was still rolling out Burson stores. It was able to acquire Autobahn. Uh, the Thailand thing was still really new. The Thailand um, aspect of the business is growing and it's a pretty impressive side of the business. The other thing that's worth mentioning is they've basically gone to this, I can't remember the name of it, what they call it, but it's basically like a near fully automated um, picking and packing warehouse, which I think from memory is about five times more efficient than um, traditional warehousing methods. So I think there's there's certain synergies to come from the business over time, and I I I I was always underplaying the EV move to be honest here in Australia because I always thought that it was still too far away for it to impact that forecast in terms of when you're forecasting revenues for Bapcor, um, but now I see it and I think it's a coming coming more close. You know, the, the the longer we go, the closer that that terminal value is, and I think it's it's coming down a bit. Um, the other the other business that would probably be interesting, speaking of you doing um, some burnouts, is um, a company on the ASX called National Tire. And National Tire is a business that's not really involved in parts; it's just involved in t- tires and distribution of tires. So it does it's a distribution business. It trades in the ASX under ticker code NTD, which is a business I own shares in. And it's actually it's got its own set of unique risks, including import and export. But um, the business itself isn't involved in the parts; it's just involved in the tires. Because I was actually interested to know that tires are consumed quite rapidly on electric vehicles or similarly to a, to combustion engines as well. And so if you're looking for a business that also has an industrial-like focus with a dividend, that might be another option for people to consider. I like the tire angle. You definitely use up more tire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and that's because a lot of electrical, electric vehicles are quite heavy, right? So and they accelerate fast. Yeah, I thought machine learning would kick in and it would just know not to burn the rubber. <laughs> ah, but what it, it, machine learning does not stop the person 
and from hitting the acceleration throttle. You know, I love being, as I love to say, I love being the first person in red light in a zone which is 80 to 100 because that's really fun. Yeah. I always look at the Tesla when it pulls up beside me and it takes off. You can't hear it, of course, because it's electric. And you're just, you're like, okay, I've got this, I've got this thing. And then they just kind of scoot away from you. And <laughs> Damn it. Because um, it doesn't sound like a mean car, but it just takes <laughs> off. And yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing. Hey, there's one more thing that we've got to just a couple more minutes. I, just one more thing that uh, I thought I'd pick your brain on real quick is a company called Life360. I'm not sure if you, you know Life360, but- um, I know a little bit about it. Yeah. So I'll just quickly jump across to it, but they've, they're buying a business called Tile. And um, this is really interesting for the for the kind of Apple angle of things and just finding things around the house. So um, here we go. We can see from the highlights, Life360 has entered an agreement to acquire 100% of Tile um, for a purchase price of up to US $170 million plus US $35 million in retention awards for Tile employees. So that's 205 in total. Um, Tile is the global leader in finding things and locates a million of unique items every day. Leveraging its vast community that spans 195 countries, Tile's cloud-based finding platform helps people find things that matter to them most. And so Live360, how does this company go? Live360 is a business that um, has created an app that allows families to track their um, their children, uh, whether they're at school or whether they're going out just kind of like for safety and security. Uh, it can also help um, with tracking loved ones in general. So if you have the elderly and those types of things. So it's a really interesting business. Uh, in that respect, it's growing in the, it's massive in the US and it's trying to grow in Australia, although the offering's a little bit softer here. Um, the company has performed pretty well. Um, I'll bring up the share price. The company has performed pretty well, but it has, um, it, it's hard to define the, the competitive advantage, in my opinion. So, yeah, I don't know. That's just my high level thing. And we've, we've obviously got, you and I know a little bit about this kind of finding things because Apple's doing something similar, right? With its, with its Find My network. Like this. Yes, like that right there. There it is. There is it. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, the Apple's Find My has been around Life360. So, Life360's main thing has been cross-platform, right? So, it'll work across Apple and across Android seamlessly. Uh, at least that's the claim. Um, I don't know. I have not used the product. And um, a tile is basically what I was showing, AirTags. So, AirTag is basically Apple's version of finding things. And um, so, I mean, I, th I think there is a there is a place for uh, cross-platform. There's a definitely a place for this stuff to be used across Android. Um, does it make Life360 stronger? I don't know. I really don't know. What I think is interesting, though, with this deal is a couple of things, right? I mean, uh, I think Tyler's raised 150 million odd in VC funds. They're selling for about 200 million, so there's not much return there in terms of the amount of money invested versus the amount of money being returned to investors. Uh, that says something. Um, the number two thing is, you know, and you know, you were mentioning uh, Peloton. Um, is I think if you think about a service, that's a great service, a great product. But as a standalone piece, either doesn't have the kind of moat or novelty enough to ward off competition, right? Especially for a company like Apple, which can roll out a product that fits into its ecosystem and works seamlessly across its ecosystem. And then, you know, it could be part and parcel. You're using the same iCloud and everything just, just works, right? 
for Apple, it's just another feature. So when your feature, you know, when your product becomes somebody else's feature, it's a big, big problem. Um, and, and I think that's probably the reason. And, you know, AirTag, so I, I put out a tweet about this. AirTag came out in April of this year. <laughs> and by November, Tile is sold, <laughs> right? Uh, and that says something. Uh, I don't know whether Apple ever tried to buy AirTag. Uh, sorry, Apple ever tried to buy Tile. Maybe they didn't because, I mean, you know, and and that's the other thing, right? If if your technology is not complex enough to be bought out by someone, then you know. Again, I don't know. I'm just this is my speculation, please. I, I can't be definitive, of course, because I you know without knowing the underlying of the technology. But the fact that Apple had either maybe Apple was working on it for a long time, or um, you know uh, Apple could do it because it can throw engineers at it. But you know, again, if you if if something doesn't require that many hurdles to be jumped, then it is easier to, to um, I guess, you know, demolish you or, you know, put you into a corner and things like that. So that, that's what I think. I, I don't, I'm not 100% sure how this adds value, but maybe the price is just too good. And maybe this gives, I guess it helps with, um, maybe the angle I can think of for Life360 is land and expand, right? So you you sign up people with Find My, now you can find, you can add Find My, usually you can find my people and now you can find my things. And they kind of, there's a little bit of a land and expand model maybe here that's possible. So maybe it helps with retention and, and just more products to sell. So there's probably some logic there that I can think of, but that's my, my take. I mean, you know. Mm. And- yeah, it's, it's, it says this in the, the announcement and I'll get to just some short, uh, short thoughts quickly, but uh, Tyre will, also have immediate access to the Life360 user base as a new plugin-ready distribution channel and extension to its current finding network. And so I guess the one of the things here from Life360's perspective is that it can do more things with more people. So more tracking, um, the, the ecosystem becomes larger more quickly. And um, conversely for Tile too, they then have access to, I think it's 850,000 paying circles um, which are the circles that of family groups that pay Life360. So it's a really interesting business. And I think it's complimentary, but I think you're right. I, I think it's a little bit different. I think it's more about these two playing together in a niche rather than going outside of that and trying to conquer the world, say like more like air tags or something like that. Um, fascinating, fascinating business um, and an interesting acquisition, quite a big acquisition for Life360, if I do say so as well. So um, capital raisings and all the like, um, really interesting business model overall. So mate, that's about all we have time for today. Uh, I, you've got the recommendation coming out, which is fantastic. So people can head to seveninvesting.com forward slash subscribe. Um, you can find out more about what I'm doing at www.ras.com.au. Um, we're also on Twitter at 7A Mahanti and my, me, I am at Owen Rask. You can find us on Twitter. It's a great place to engage with us because then you can keep up to date with when we're going live and you can pitch us some stocks as well. So mate, as always, Pleasure. Thanks for joining me. This is always mine, Owen. It was fantastic chat. Cheers.